being a Jew kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Everybody, this is Wrong Real episode 509. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we have recurring guest and contributor Mackenzie Lambert, the host of Mac in the Movies. And you might have heard him in the past on his episodes about like Amando de Osorio and like uh, Enzo G. Castellario. It seems like we are we're always tackling these cool, obscure genre filmmakers. And today he's back to talk about the wild and wonderful and over-the-top career of Andy Sidaris. But Mr. Lambert, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Oh, thanks for having me on, James. I uh, always look forward to us uh, chatting about movies. Well, what I love is... Almost every single time you pitch an episode, it's always about a director where I haven't even seen a single movie. It's always these giant untouched filmographies, which for me are just so exciting because new frontiers are what keep me engaged as just a cinephile. And I'm just a hopeless lover of unpretentious genre films. And you just have in your back pocket all these incredible incredible names that you're always tossing out. And it was one of the things where I'd been intending – to watch some of his movies for a very, very long time. And as soon as you mentioned Sidaris, I was like, yes, hell yes, done and done, no questions asked. So uh, thanks for making this pitch. Oh, anytime, yeah. I, 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 I always like, it, if you're not enjoying what you're watching, if you're not having fun, then what's the point? Yeah, I'm a big believer in like all intellectual pretension aside, just the, the unbridled joy and being honest about like what you're responding to. Like when I was doing a video recently about Christopher Nolan and his top 10 movies, I can say objectively that certain movies I think are superior in terms of craftsmanship, but I have to be honest. It's like, all right, but I did see Batman Begins like 50,000 fucking times. So Mm -hmm. which movie do I like more? The one that I've seen 50,000 times or the one that I've seen twice? And I think sometimes filmmaker – or not filmmaker, but film commentators or analysts kind of get – they blur the lines between their favorite movies and the best movies. And I always try to emphasize which movies are my favorite because that's what's real, raw, emotional, and honest when you're discussing movies. Oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I enjoy uh, Stanley Kubrick or David Lynch, but you know what? I'll take a Lucio Fulci movie uh, pretty much any day over them just because those are the films I find myself enjoying the most. Well, for people who have not necessarily heard your previous episodes, tell us who you are, what your show is all about, etc. 
I'm Mackenzie Lambert. I'm the host of the podcast Mac and the Movies, where I look at everything from art house to grindhouse, uh, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten and the unforgettable. Uh, recently, I've uploaded episodes uh, on the parody legend Zucker Abrahams and Zucker, uh, exploitation legend Al Adamson. I've actually had the pleasure of interviewing a uh, New York City filmmaker Michael Deserto. Uh, his film Tryptosain, which is kind of like what you would think Kubrick would make if he was in the low budget indie sector. Uh, and then there's also Brandon Steer, who many know as the director of Velocipaster. Uh, tomorrow, my episode on Jerry Gross will go up. Uh, he's a director and producer, but probably more famous as a distributor of classics like I Drink Your Blood, I Spit on Your Grave, the Mondo Kane films, and Lucio Fulci's Zombie. I can't even hear people mention I Spit on Your Grave without involuntarily crossing my legs. It's got the <laughs> most intense and kind of subtle castration scene in mm-hmm. movie history and uh, I mean, you, it's mesmerizing because it's kind of kinky and kind of interesting. And then something's like, oh, oh, that kind of stung. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> the scene changes so abruptly. But I can't believe how <laughs> hardcore that scene is. <laughs> but Al Adamson, it seems like he's been getting a lot of uh, coverage lately. Was there a giant box set on Al Adamson that came out? Oh yeah, like twelve of his movies in the box set just recently came out. Yeah, I'm, I'm a total blank slate. So what, what what what's the deal with Al Adamson? Why, why are people freaking? I know it's like everybody over like Pure Cinema podcast and things like that. They've all been going crazy talking about that box set. Uh, just it's uh, it fully encompasses his uh, career, the the fun stuff, as well as the uh, stuff that's just kind of eh, not so much. Uh, but Dracula versus Frankenstein is a highlight. Uh, gotcha. Uh, uh, Blood of Dracula's Castle is another good one. So he he enjoys uh, the campy horror, and yet when he seems to try to stay uh, stray away from it, it doesn't work out as well. So. If you want to really just get an idea of his career, both the ups and downs, then it's a good box set to have. But uh, the Al Adamson episode uh, that I did uh, just touches on like the five or six best films that he did, the ones that I would recommend. Okay, very cool. Well, let's shift gears then into the great Andy Sidaris. Let's talk a little bit before we get – I mean he's very famous for his motto of making movies with like bullets, bombs, and babes, like BBB mm-hmm. for short. But before he became known for uh, his unique style or his unique <laughs> approach to storytelling, he had quite a different career in TV. So set the stage. Who was Andy Sidaris and how did his career get up and running? Uh, he was uh, born in Chicago, then grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, he started out as directing coverage for uh, different uh, sports games, football, basketball, uh, the Olympic events. Uh, and he actually won an Emmy for his work in this field. Uh, he's probably best known for ABC's Wide World of Sports, uh, which he was the show's first director and was at that job for 25 years. Uh, he moved into television in the 1970s, dramatic television, uh, Gemini Man, uh, Kojak with uh, Telly Savalas, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries. Uh, he also did a little work on uh, some mainstream movies. He was an uncredited football choreographer in Robert Altman's MASH. Nice. Uh, of course, he's known for his, uh, uh, well, you say uh, bullets, bombs, and babes. I've heard people call it bullets, bombs, and boobs because I think it's pretty honest. Uh, produced between 1985 and 1998. Uh, these are ultimately, you know, the female James Bond films with a sex positive perspective. Because we hear so many people say, oh, why isn't there like a female James Bond? And then you have movies like Atomic Blonde. But yet, Sedaris was kind of doing this like, what, 30 years ago? So I, I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. And uh, you, the, the interviews you posted as well, like the one with Joe Bob Briggs, and I didn't get the name of the other gentleman, the, 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 the guy with the porn stash. 
uh, women felt empowered. They didn't feel exploited. Uh, they didn't allow the losers of the genetic lottery to keep them from doing what they wanted. And so I think that's actually he was probably one of the more under stated empowerment figures as far as women in cinema go. Well, I think on first glance, people are going to say, oh, well, these movies are degrading or they're exploitative, etc. But then you watch these interviews and you realize that his wife, Arlene Sidaris, was there every step of the way producing these movies and how actresses like Donna Spear really enjoy these because they got to show badass athletic chicks being the heroes of the story. And while there are some like, you know, studly kind of well-oiled overly tanned men with like you know ponytails doing karate and things like that mm-hmm. in general the girls are the heroes of the story and they're also oftentimes the villains of the story they get like yeah. the, the meaty roles so i think well if people on the one judges movies on the surface is just being pure exploitation and they are exploitation but they're like yeah. exploitation in the best possible way like they mm-hmm. are just good old-fashioned harmless fun he's not trying to create the seven seals not trying to create eight and a half he's basically making like not not straight to video, but he's basically just making good old fashioned action flicks that have a crap load of <laughs> nudity. And if you if you if you if you're more interested in seeing the fellows, there's plenty of well sculpted male physiques on display as well in movies like Day of the Warrior and things like that. Uh, first question is to Arlene. Now you're the producer of this film yeah. that you're here to promote today, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Now a lot of people would call this, say, a drive-in movie or an action adventure film. Uh, some people would say a B movie because it has some some ladies in it, some beautiful women like Donna, and a lot of women are going to say, "Now, why do you want to take me to a film that has you know beautiful women jumping around that make me feel bad because I'm not as beautiful as they are?" Tell me about that. Well, it is an action adventure film. There, yes, there are beautiful women, there are beautiful men, beautiful scenery, a great sense of humor about it, great action, and terrific entertainment. And as far as it being a B-movie, um, it, it does not have uh, Robert Redford and Barbra Streisand, but it has other wonderful qualities. We have terrific actors and actresses. Now, before we get to any more fun stuff, a lot of women that, that I've talked to don't like the idea that there uh, are women that don't have all their clothes on in films. They don't think, they think it's exploitive of women, they think it's something that shouldn't be done. And what is your answer to that? Well, I don't know why they think it shouldn't be done. These are some of the most beautiful women with the most beautiful bodies in the world. And um, if there's no problem with showing nudity at the Louvre, I don't see why there's a problem showing nudity on film. And the day I I walk into a room and a man can't say you have great legs, I will be a very sorry feminist. Yeah, people just for whatever reason, the moment somebody takes their clothes off, they just they lose their minds and get all hysterical. And uh, I make zero apologies about enjoying watching movies with abundant nudity. And also, these movies, they're not porn. Like, if you see, I don't know if there's a single shot below the waist in any of these movies that I saw on the list that we put together. And like, there's shower scenes and there's softcore like makeout scenes, but like, it's basically like a lot of like wailing saxophones and 80s electric guitars and it's it's it's, it's late night cable softcore porn yeah, p- cinemax yeah taken yeah. taken to the extreme but you're not going to see penetration or anything like that so nah. it's it's very chaste when it comes to uh the sex scenes yeah this is basically you know uh, the training wheels of porn as far as i'm concerned before you get yeah, to yeah <laughs> I mean, if i if i had known who Sidaris was as a young teen i would have been all over this it's a shame because he really hit his stride right when i turned 9 with uh, malibu express so i feel like my formative years would have been even like 
would have been even more fun had I known about this like <laughs> steady stream of movies that was coming out until the into the late nineties because that would have taken me up to my to my early twenties. He could have held me by the hand and guided me throughout all my formative years. But sadly, I didn't discover his movies until I was a dirty old man because, like I said, I hadn't seen any of his movies prior to your suggesting this. But I've been I've been aware of Malibu Express. For a long time, because you're always seeing people post that in, in extraordinary hand-drawn illustrative poster, and so it was always on my radar. I knew I was always going to circle around to it at some point, and so here we are, Andy Sidaris. Well, one thing you mentioned you didn't mention from uh, his time in TV is that he became famous for what was called the Honey Shot, which is now mm-hmm. obviously anytime you watch any sporting event, you're going to get no, like. 50% of the broadcast is honey shots, but they're basically close-ups of cheerleaders and pretty girls in the stands at sporting events. And, of course, now you'll see, like, you know, kids ripping their shirts off or people catching baseballs, whatever the case may be. But he really pioneered this idea of if you're going to tell if you're going to broadcast a sporting event, get the crowd in on the action as well. That's where you're going to get a lot of your, your, your best drama. Yeah, a lot of that, too, was just because there were just a lot of games that were just absolutely boring with nothing going on. So he says, OK, let's see what we can find going on in the crowd. Well, so a football was... game is long as hell with a lot of timeouts <laughs> and a lot of time in the huddle and that sort of thing. It's one of the reasons why I, I love watching combat sports. I love MMA because at any given mm-hmm. second, someone can get submitted or knocked out and fights over. It could be a 10-second fight or it could be a 25-minute fight. You don't really know. But I like sports where at any given moment – there is a, a KO poss- possibility. Mm-hmm. And with football, man, it's like sometimes with all the commercial breaks, you're locked in for like a four or five hour experience. And like, yes, you need some fucking honey shots mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep his attention <laughs> if you're going to devote their entire day to watching this f- fucking game. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like his, uh, his, like his real career gets underway with Malibu Express, but he took a couple stabs at movies earlier. And Arlene Sidaris, who was the producer on the, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew series, that's how they started working together where she was producing the shows, he was directing episodes. But one of his first attempts at doing what he would later be famous for was with Stacy in 1973, where you can see a lot of the DNA of his later movies, like you know, insanely hot girls driving race cars, hopping out of the race car, whipping their titties out, and just doing, <laughs> doing their thing. And it's a pretty lackluster movie that looks like at any given moment it could like turn into like last house on the left like it's kind of shot like one of those early 70s horror movies that just leaves you with all sorts of emotional scars but it never goes that way it's just um it's a first pass or a rough draft as some of the uh the the later ingredients that he would be known for but i loved it as like the version i saw on youtube you could tell it's just a rip from somebody's uh, VHS, because at the very end of it, there was a trailer for uh, Sylvia Christel and uh, Julia. And Sylvia Christel obviously was, you know, huge star in like the soft Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel and all that kind yeah. of stuff in the 70s. But this was for Julia. But it kind of gave you a bit of that drive-in grindhouse experience, having that trailer tacked on at the end of the movie. <laughs> well, look who's here. When the action is too rough for one man, send for Savano's Seven. First of all, it's no ordinary cleanup job. Once we take out one of those bananas, we gotta wipe out the rest of them in 30 minutes. If we're gonna get this thing done, we're gonna get it done quick. Savano's Seven. The Playmate, The Black Belt, The Dragster, The Comic, The Professor, The Indian, The Cowboy, Seven, Death, 
is their way of life. Seven. I guess now's as good time as any to shift gears into Seven from 1979, which is the first movie on the ones that you recommended, but have been kind of out of circulation for decades. So set the stage for us. What is Seven? Obviously, it's not the Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt film. And if you go on Amazon and you look up Seven from 1979 and you click to rent, it takes you to the fucking David Fincher movie, which drives yeah. me fucking crazy. Amazon yep. needs to get their fucking shit together because so <laughs> often their movies are posted in the wrong aspect ratio or it's the wrong version of the movie. And here, once again, Amazon dropping the ball. You're trying to watch um, you know, this great William Smith, uh, Andy Sidaris film, and instead you're getting something quite different. Yeah, that's why I still stick with physical media. I'm still not fully on board with the whole streaming train, at least, you know, with uh, DVDs. I know that I'm going to get the aspect ratio that fits my television. I'm not going to get any content cut. Disney Plus. Uh, and as far as Seven goes, yeah, the, the, uh, the basic premise is uh, after some uh, coordinated assassinations of a senator, his aide and agents in the field, uh, Drew Savano, uh, played by William Smith, uh, is hired to bring together a ragtag team of agents to take down the assassins. Uh, and you just look at the cat. This this feels just so much different uh, from what uh, Andy Sedaris would do later on. You look at the cast. You've got William Smith. You've got Martin I mean, Cove. That's Conan's dad himself, William Smith, who probably did more <laughs> Grindhouse and Drive-In movies than any other human being who ever lived. Oh, yeah. he's like He was like regular for Fred the Hammer Williamson. Uh, you've got Ted Kaiser. You've got Lenny Montana from The Godfather of all, of all movies. Uh, you've got Art Metrano. It's like you look at this cast and it's like, this is like uh, Andy Sedaris is almost like trying to make a Castellari film this, just from this cast and from just the way it's built up. Yeah, I mean, he's got a go- absolutely stunning, gorgeous poster that's like it overpromises in the best tradition of great exploitation movie posters where you just have like, you know, chiseled muscular dudes with like rocket launchers and guns, <laughs> etc. And insanely hot girls with crossbows. Sedaris, I don't know what's going on in his in his mind, but crossbows and rocket launchers appear in all these movies. He loves yeah. crossbows, <laughs> in particular crossbows with exploding bolts, but all the way through Day of the Warrior, like in the late 90s, it's like, God damn it, you really do <laughs> just love crossbows. <laughs> and it's like, you see all these recurring gags and motifs that get reused, like people who don't aim particularly well with like their big-ass magnums, so they need to use a rocket launcher and things like that. And I love how he's always kind of remaking or honing or improving and trying to kind of get it right. But a lot of these movies have gags and things like that that would be used in much more prominent movies. I mean, um, in Seven, is it this? Yeah, this is the first movie that used the uh, shooting the swordsman gag that obviously two years later in Raiders of the Lost Ark Mm -hmm. would be so damn cool. And of course, now everyone's like, oh my god, that's so offensive. How dare he just shoot this guy with the sword? Well, the shooting (laughs) the swordsman gag was used two years earlier by Sidaris, long before Harrison Ford and Steven Spielberg took a crack at it. And you got uh, you've got some memorable characters like the the skateboarding assassin in Seven. That's that was. Might be the most ineffectual assassin I've ever seen. Like when he and William Smith finally throw down, I love how he's he's basically doing like like freestyle. He's doing these like these spins that like Rodney Mullen would be so uh, famous for a couple of years later. But he's sitting there doing spins as William Smith just backs up into him and crushes him with his car. And anyway, I knew his time on this planet was not uh, not for long. But this is the beginning of Sidaris's 
very regular and lovable trait of using basically any girl, like any girl who's willing, who's appeared in either Playboy or Penthouse. He started hiring these girls, and he leaned more toward girls who were athletic or could do some stunts or had like you know surfing ability. Where like it, it helped if they were sporty in a lot of ways. But you start seeing this steady stream of some of the hottest girls from the late 70s through the late 90s appearing in all these. And in this, you have uh, a playmate from 1979, Carol Needham, a redhead that kind of haunts me to the core of my soul. I've got a sentimental weakness for redheads. And early (laughs) on, somebody comes by to recruit Conan's dad for this mission. And Carol Needham just drops her top and walks out of the room. And I was like, all right, this is the movie for me. Any particular favorite girls who appear? I mean, for people who get easily offended by men gazing lustily upon women, this is probably not necessarily the uh, the podcast you want to be listening to. But uh, <laughs> obviously, William Smith is a star of this, but he's got a lot of uh, lovely co-stars. Any of them in particular jump out at you? Uh, no, not in this film in particular, but some of the other films in Sadars, I do have uh, some soft spots for the, some of the ladies. Well, the girl that I really liked in this was uh, Sandra Bernadou as Rhonda, who was a penthouse pet in 1976. And, uh, and my, my memories of Penthouse are I get very sentimental about it because I'll never forget. I was about eight or nine. No, I think I was eight. I was watching TV. I might have even been younger. And I was with her with my little sister who was like five. And my older brother, who's only a couple years older, comes striding into the den, slams a Penthouse down on the floor and right in front of us and says, I just stole that from 7-Eleven. Like, he was so <laughs> proud. And he was, you know, he felt so, so brave. And we went through that thing, cover to cover, page by page, gazing at all this inappropriate material. But um, we weren't like aroused by it, but we were just mesmerized because it was so otherworldly and so strange. And so, yeah, when it comes to to Penthouse, I've got some some sentimental affection because back in the 80s, there was no porn. There was Playboy and Penthouse and the occasional skin on Skinamax. So Penthouse was a a huge part of my life as as a young buck. It was kind of the same for me, too, but it was with uh, the Kentucky Fried movie uh, because that was like the first dirty film my friends and I saw it had uh, acne jokes, fart jokes. Uh, that was like the first time we saw nudity on screen, and that was probably why I had my my first screen crush was Tara Strohmeyer. It was just because uh, absolutely beautiful, and the nudity helped as well. Well, it's got that wonderful sequence. The Catholic is it Catholic high Catholic school, high school girls, in, girls in trouble. <laughs> that scene is so goddamn funny. It's basically a trailer for a fake porn film. You got Ushiga Degard making love up against the glass of a shower, and um, you know, but like little bits like show me your nuts. And he's like. <laughs> you know, surfing in the USA and all that kind of stuff. And then you also had the great bit later in the movie where it's uh, like a tutorial on how to make love, like with great intimacy. And this guy hey, suffers from slay. Yeah, <laughs> the guy has premature ejaculation. So this giant football player with an afro bursts through the wall, picks up the girl, and is like has a sexual appetite. They'll knock your socks off. Blah blah blah. And they go striding out of the room. So yeah, Kentucky Fried movie, funny as hell, intensely erotic, and yeah, it uh, it it, it absolutely fucking rocks. Well. I think Seven, for me, while it has one of the coolest motherfuckers of the late 70s, early 80s with William Smith, and while it's got a, this gorgeous poster and it's got tons of pretty girls, I feel like you can see that Andy Sidaris is still trying to figure out his formula, but I love William Smith's voiceover narration. I love any movie where you see a guy like assembling a team of various psychos and badasses. I feel like there's so many movies in the 60s and 70s where you just see one person going out and recruiting people with different skills and slowly but surely, he puts together this really interesting team of you know strange dudes and hot chicks who are all kind of hanging mm-hmm. around the pool, and they're 
basically you know you've got your team in a Sadar's film anytime there's a pool or a hot tub nearby and everybody's kind of strategizing and as they're fond of saying in all these movies they do their best thinking when they're in the hot tub <laughs> and so you're seeing all these stylistic uh, recurring motifs slowly but surely uh, coming together in this particular movie so yeah this, this for me is like the real beginning of the Sidaris, uh, mm-hmm. I guess it, it takes until maybe what was it? Um, hard ticket to Hawaii before he really mm-hmm. starts locking down his continuity with ter- in terms of like certain recurring characters and like certain recurring agencies. Yeah, but all the like I said, all the DNA is there in the earlier movies. He just hasn't quite locked down the formula yet. Yeah, yeah, and it was Hard Tickets Hawaii was the the first film that I was introduced to as far as uh, Andy Sedaris films go. Uh, my friends uh, Jared and Maddie, uh, they were they knew about they were the ones that introduced me to Sedaris. Uh, they also introduced me to a bunch of weird stuff like Forbidden Zone, How Sue. Uh, and how uh, what's uh, cast a deadly spell? They were the ones that really first got me interested in genre cult cinema. So and and so thanks to them, I found out about Andy Sedaris, and my first introduction was Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely kicks ass. Well, just to close out on uh, seven, mm-hmm. if you're a fan of watching like middle aged chubby dudes doing kind of make believe karate, like. You never quite know who in these movies actually knows martial arts or people who just watch a lot of movies and are kind of doing dramatic poses. But the action, the, if the movies didn't have the insanely hot girls, I probably would not watch them or be doing a podcast yeah. about them. But the action is fun, and it's just additional seasoning. And most of the action is typically done for comedic effect, whether like people are being locked in their cars and burned alive or helicopters are being shot down by rocket launchers or whatever the case might be. Very little of the, of the action is meant to like be thrilling or terrifying. It's always it's more almost like Three Stooges kind of yeah, action. Yeah, it's lighthearted viewing. Absolutely, but it, but it works. I guess it was um, Ed Parker. He kills this ninja at one point after killing the big boss, and this guy he pulls out a gun and says "Hiya, my ass." But like those lines would be repeated by Donna Spear <laughs> later on in later movies. So uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Andy Sidaris only had like three or four ideas in his back pocket, and so he just kept having to <laughs> return to the well. And he's like, "All right, well, it's been a couple of years. Let's whip that. Let's whip out that line or that action beat or that particular scene again." And you know, no one no one's paying that close attention. Mm-mm. Meet Cody Abilene, a private eye with an adoring public. He's an undercover operator. Hi, I'm May, and this is my friend Faye. With a knack for getting at the bare facts. Yeah. This is the Countess, a government agent with her own special skills. And together, they're both headed for danger on the Malibu Express. This is Kinky. In the world of high rollers, low blows, and dangerous curves, Cody's playing a deadly new game. Go ahead, make my day. The FBI wants him back. No one should suspect anything. I'm gonna nail him with a grenade. The Russians want him dead. And the girls from the yacht next door just want him. I understand you're a private investigator. And Cody Abilene always gets his girl. So park your car, hide your guns, and lock up your daughters. Cody Abilene just got another case. He's hard to catch. You 
are continental. Hard to keep. Scoot your butts outside. Hard to figure. And impossible to resist. Starring Sybil Danning, Darby Hinton, and five Playboy Playmates. I didn't just bring you in for sex. I have a few things to fill you in on. Make tracks for the Malibu Express. No matter where you're headed, it goes all the way. Would I help any woman in distress? Yes, ma'am, I would. Well, I know you mentioned before we started recording that you haven't seen Malibu, Expe Malibu Express yet, but the good news is you're saving what I think is his best movie for last, but I do need to give um, some love to it just because it is okay. such a, a genuine exploitation classic in so many ways. But 1985, stars five Playboy Playmates. It's the first installment in the Triple B series, the first official one, and you start seeing some names this like this boat, the Malibu Express in Hawaii, is almost like the headquarters for a lot of these agents in the later movies, and you start getting this premise. So I guess for people who have not seen any of these, what are the lethal ladies like? What is this organization that is um, featured in so many of these movies? Well, I I'm, I guess it was in later films it was referred to as lethal, but uh, in the earlier films it was just called the agency, and so it's just basically this. Uh, I guess you could say a it's more, like Shield, um, but with really, Shield, exactly. Yeah, really hot exactly girls. I was going to go for yeah, Shield with hot girls. That's pretty pretty much it. Uh, and uh, there's something. Do you know what invest... the lethal acronym stands for? Uh, it, I actually I remember seeing it in uh, Day of the Warrior, but I didn't write, I didn't think to write that down. Yeah, I haven't written it down either. I, I guess like a prize goes to any listener out there who can tell us what the uh, the lethal acronym stands for. I'm sure it's written down on IMDb uh, on some of the trivia, but I I, I didn't I wasn't that preoccupied <laughs> writing it down. I was distracted by other ingredients. But getting back to like Malibu Express. Like I think the music's better in this one. Like there's this really fun country song called "Girl in the Centerfold" that goes mm. placed throughout it. Like the music in the Andy Sedaris films is awful in the best kind of way, where it's like every generic electric guitar or saxophone you can think of from the late '80s and early '90s. But you've got Barbara Edwards, who was a Playmate of the Year for 1983. And if you're a fan of Playboy history, Barbara Edwards is one of the great playmates. What's funny is that you have this recurring bit where the boat, the Malibu Express is docked next door to these girls who are constantly trying to seduce the star of the movie. And so he'll be hanging out and like about to go on some big mission or taking an important call. And these girls just keep striding in and like asking if like, oh, can we use your shower? Like we don't have any water and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> there's all these you know, ludicrous scenarios. And there's all this information, like all this like Cold War propaganda about like leaking information to the Russians, and like there's like there's this giant plot that's unfolding, none of which really matters. It's all about this guy just basically going from one strange scenario to another. Sybil Danning, who I absolutely love from like I think it's the Howling three or two, but she's one of the main characters in it. Sybil Danning like, is always wearing these dresses where it looks like her body parts are just going to explode forth <laughs> at, at at any given moment. And I just have always had a huge, uh, huge thing for her. But there's uh, one particular scene. Oh, yeah, there's this great bit where the hero's been attacked by all these bodybuilders up in the desert, and he runs onto this used car lot. He says, I need the fastest thing on this lot. And the girl who runs is a sugar. I'm the fastest thing on this lot. And she rips her top <laughs> off, and they, they get it on. She gives him a car. But if you like, like Russ Meyer movies where you've got comedy yeah, and action and nudity all yeah. thrown together, I think Malibu Express deserves – 
it's not same similar in atmosphere or tone, but if you're if you like that stuff, if you like faster pussycat kill kill, Malibu Express is uh, right up right up everybody's alley. Yeah, you think of like Super Vixen and uh, oh, Belly yeah. of the Dolls. Yeah, Super Vixen for me, I think it's maybe the most like entertaining movie of the 1970s. Like you could say <laughs> like Smoking the Bandit or Star Wars or Jaws, but Super Vixens, man, I, I've I don't know how many times I've watched it, but it is like the grindhouse movie of the 1970s that I find myself returning returning to the most. Uh, and Erica uh, Erica Gavin, uh, God what a damn. beauty! Yeah, Erica Gavin and freaking Ushi Degard and who I mean, there's there are a ton of great ones that he would mm-hmm. work with again and again and again. But yeah, Super Vixens is the shit. Well, I was reading on, on IMDb that while this movie is con- generally considered to be the original Lethal Ladies or Girl with Guns movie, but it, like, no major characters or cast members reappear uh, mm-hmm. in future chapters. So the continuity really starts and gets, like, or the loose continuity really starts in Hard to Hawaii in 1987, which you said is your introduction. So what is this shared universe? Did Andy Sidaris anticipate Kevin Feige in the MCU, <laughs> you know, a good t- 23, 24 years ahead of time? Uh, I don't know. I've made the case where Fritz Long was the first cinematic universe because you have Dr. Mabusa, the gambler, uh, M with Peter Lorre, and Tessman, Dr. Mabusa, all taking place in the same universe wow. with the same characters. I like it. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I would say you could make the case for uh, Andy Sedaris uh, uh, kind of stealing Marvel's thunder and taking these similar themes and similar characters, although it's weird because it doesn't keep that much of a continuity because you'll have uh, Julie Strain be a villain in one film and then she's actually a good guy in another film. So you, it, it doesn't it's not strictly um, in the continuity, but it does kind of keep the same themes and same character archetypes. Yeah, and you've got Donna Spear and Hope Marie Carlton as like the duo, the dynamic duo again and again, and they're just – Two of the prettiest blondes you've ever seen and, you know, sporty as hell and they love a roll in the hay and they love to beat the fuck out of people and they love, <laughs> they love fast cars and they love guns. And uh, like when you watch these interviews with, I guess, uh, Donna Spears, she seems not to have ever really been that interested in acting, which she credits with why she got so many parts. And I guess there's a great sit-down where Donna Spear and uh, Sidaris and his wife sit down and just talk about mm-hmm. their whole approach to this uh, to this franchise. But she just kind of eased into it where she did a little Playboy and then suddenly she discovered the Sidaris clan. And I feel like she's probably the most frequent collaborator of them. But there you got a yeah. lot of actresses like Cynthia Brimhall and like that appear again and again and again or Roberta, Roberta Vasquez. But I love how if they find someone they like who can kind of get into the spirit of things, they keep coming back for more and would oftentimes recruit their friends for, for later films. Yeah. Well, give us, give us the gist of Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. It has it all. The awesome, pristine beauty of the land. The warm caress of perfect beaches. The tantalizing wetness of the Blue Pacific. Hawaii. It's a great place to visit. But you wouldn't want to die there. Four of America's finest ready and willing to pay the price for paradise. Ah. They're undercover, but not under-equipped. On this mission, there's hard flying, hard playing, hard fighting. Agents are everywhere. Have no mercy. 
this ain't no hula. It's a hard ticket to Hawaii. Can, can you can uh, you sing the theme song for us? <laughs> uh, no, you don't want to hear that. Uh, I, I that that would just you'll want to stab pencils in your ears. It was a total earworm. <laughs> I couldn't get it out of my head for like a week. And any time, like it would like come back. I'm like no, and like I, I wouldn't. Be able to, I, would, I kept trying to wash it out of my ears with other songs. But just yeah, that hard ticket to Hawaii. I guess. You got like the plane flying through all these great mountains, like in, like in the islands of Hawaii, and it's it's glorious photography. But goddamn that song, I just couldn't shake it. Uh, okay, as far as hard ticket uh, to Hawaii, a, a local drug operation is taken over by a foreign cartel. Uh, the killing of two policemen brings in the agency to investigate. You have Donna, an agent, and Taryn, her uh, civilian former agent. Uh, they take on the investigation. Uh, meanwhile, a snake contaminated from toxic waste is set loose, attacking innocent visitors of the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, like, of, of course you've got a, 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 a giant, big-ass, fake-looking snake in a crate, like, you know, spreading horrible diseases. I mean, that whole subplot with the snake is one of the most bizarre ingredients in this movie. But you never really see something like that again in his later movies. So maybe he was yeah. like, all right, we're one and done with, like, with, the, with the giant monsters. But it def- definitely adds a little unintentional comedy. But what I noticed as I was watching this, because I'd already seen a couple of Sadar's movies before I saw Hard Ticket to Hawaii – during the opening credit sequence in the warehouse, I was like, "Wait a second, this movie is already starting to feel like a like it's got like that signature Sidaris style." So while people might look down upon the movies as being cheap or inexpensive or exploitative, if you believe in the auteur theory and you subscribe to it, you do feel suddenly recognize you're in the hands of a filmmaker with a very recognizable style. He knows precisely what he's doing. Like when he composes a shot or depicts a certain action scene or sex scene it's not accidental it's very deliberate Mm -hmm. so people can take them or leave them but i think he definitely he knew the style of storytelling that he was going for and he had zero intellectual pretension about it and so i think he deserves some respect on that front yeah, and uh, it was, gosh, I think it was like maybe three or four years ago uh, on social media, the clip of uh, the death of Shades uh, by the Razorblade Frisbee, that went viral. People were like, oh my God, what movie is this? And then you had you know people like me who were like, oh, it's a hard ticket to Hawaii. Enjoy. You'll, you'll have fun with it. Yeah, I mean, like if you like <laughs> movies like Master of the Flying Guillotine, where like movies with really strange exotic weapons, I wouldn't necessarily place the, the Razorblade Frisbee on the same level as that, but it's getting close close it's in the same ballpark and so yeah i think you can make a strong case for this being the movie where everything kind of coalesces and comes together while i might prefer malibu express mm-hmm. i guess what i like about this is that his world is now up and running he's got his characters he's got his franchise he knows what he's doing and you really get the sense now that he's ready to make i mean he made so much goddamn money because he starting with Malibu Express he owned all of his movies mm-hmm. and they would sell internationally like he would sell them to freaking Pakistan and like like strange places that just were like <laughs> eating up these movies and so i guess he learned his lesson with 7 if you really want to make money in this in this business own your intellectual property own your franchise own your movies produce them yourselves and to this day his wife continues to run his estate and I think she's got access to 12 of the films, which she kind of nurtures online. But they've done a great job of making sure that they stay in circulation, that they're available on different platforms, that they're available in nice copies. I think uh, they're incredibly um, enterprising when it came to looking after their own affairs, which is this very similar to Russ Meyer and his wife because his wife did the books 
and kind of mm-hmm. ran the business from the home while he was off in the desert shooting all these movies. So it's almost like they studied Russ Meyer's approach. And like, all right, let's do our thing. But instead of the deserts of California, we're going to just make a lot of movies in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. That's where yeah, we like to hang out. They're sort of like uh, the Leon Vitales who are working to keep uh, their uh, mentors' uh, works alive and fresh in the minds of people. Well, you get this – like there's the same restaurant that keeps showing up in all the movies and there's the same boat that keeps showing up. You get the sense that when they were having like their downtime, they spent a lot of time in restaurants just stuffing their faces like with a lot of other sunburned people <laughs> or chilling on boats having cocktails. But you really get a sense of like the lifestyle that uh, he and his wife like to lead in, the, in their downtime. And I thought the, the sequence with the, the sports, uh, the football players was just a nice little in-joke on uh, uh, Sedaris's uh, startings in the sports world. So explain, like, I guess, um, the connection between these movies and the world of uh, ninjas, because it seems like while they're not necessarily a lot of ninjas in these movies, they're all like nunchucks and throwing stars and that sort of thing. Like, was that just because there's so much like ninja, such like a ninja like fad in the air with like like Revenge of the Ninja and uh, Ninja 3, The Domination and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, and like Diamond Ninja Force, the films of Godfrey Ho. Yeah, ninjas were still popular at this time, and and you certainly had big trouble in Little China around the same time as well. So, yeah, ninjas were still very – in fact, I think ninjas ninjas are still very popular, and so that was kind of Sedaris. You know, I don't know why you would throw nunchucks. I don't think that's what they're meant to be used for. Yeah, they're not projectiles. (laughs) But you've got like your two leads, and they find this little miniature helicopter with a bunch of diamonds that are being smuggled, and these goons show up and attack them, and they meet retaliate with throwing stars i was like all right that's cool like super hot blondes chucking shurikens at people like I'll, I'll i'll get it i can get into this but what i think i liked about hard to get to hawaii the most is that it's got the best one-liners of all the movies where you've got these stupid lines like if brains were bird shit you'd have a clean, have a clean cage, cage and things like yeah. that so i think he had his best hat on when it came to his script with this particular flick yeah, because uh, this is one here that he wrote and directed. Like, as I know, also his wife contributes as well to the writing. So this, I don't know if this, I'm trying to think offhand if this was both of them or if this was just. Yeah, I've got an IMDb right now. This is yep. just Andy Sidar. So this Andy is like okay. springing forth purely from his imagination. Uh, so yeah, this is where he's using his best hand. Yeah, and there's a another great bit where like they're these two guys are training and they're practicing martial arts, and it's like Confucius say, "Men with deadly hands must be very careful while slapping on aftershave." Like it's just <laughs> it, it's p- pure unbridled silliness. And there's some good uh, kind of body jokes between the girls. Like at one point, one of the girls is like, "Oh, well, he's got four inches," and like four inches, that's not so hot. And like, yes, it is. I measured him from the ground up. Like, is it juvenile? <laughs> yes. Is it obvious? Yes. But when you're watching it, you just sit back and it's just it's good old fashioned fun. It's like this is like if you like movies like Roadhouse, this is your kind of movie. And also, he's just got the the, the Mission Impossible uh, moments where they've got the the message in the sandwich. That's <laughs> yeah. Just- <laughs> it's just brilliant. It's, it's probably one of those movies where I'll say, that, yeah, Andy Sedaris was absolutely brilliant with this one, and not just the 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 action stuff, but also in this just the genre satire as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of anytime people want to indulge in like kinky sexual innuendo. Like, there's this one really strange line. <laughs> one of this guy says, "You go down on her, you're gonna be kissing the back of my head because I'm already gonna be there." I was like, <laughs> "All right, that's that's a, a strange." Takedown, but I guess, I guess you got. I guess you showed him. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the girls in this because uh, Cynthia Brimhall, who is in like uh, most of these, and she's my kind of gal. And I love how like the actresses in these movies, they've always either got like like a ridiculous case of camel toes while they're getting changed, or with like Donna, Donna Spear, she's got sh- she wears these shorts throughout it where it looks like if there was like 
anything more than like a stiff breeze that like her clothes would just fall right off her. Like the clothes are very flimsy. And then you've got all these like bodybuilder chicks like oiled up in tan doing poses with nunchucks. But I feel like some of his best footage of the female form is uh, is on display. And just like all these great comedic bits like this, like sex and comedy for me go together like chocolate and peanut butter. And you've got um, <laughs> Rowdy at one point, the, one of the male characters, like roaring almost in protest as Donna goes down on him. Like with like, I mean, it just it's I don't know. I, I just found myself howling with laughter. Or like Rowdy, I believe at one point as Colleen's jogging away, says, hey, Colleen, you've got a great ass. And she stops and looks back. She's like, so do you, Pilgrim. Like, I think that's one of the things that people might overlook in these movies is that for every dirty joke, for every moment where the girls' clothes are a little bit, um, you know, they barely qualify as clothing, mm-hmm. the girls are in on the joke and they're having fun yeah. as well. You get a sense that, like everybody is just having the time of their lives making these movies. And the humor is not at their expense, which I think is also another key part. A- absolutely. And if there is a joke at their expense, they throw a zinger right back. Like I'm a, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of like a plague on all your houses and, uh, and being an equal opportunity offender. If you're going to be mean or do satire or whatever, you know, make fun of everybody. And I feel like then it puts everybody on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, talk to me a little bit about his use of uh, post-credit outtakes because obviously that's something that's pretty famous. Like how Needham used to do with like the Cannonball Run movies. And Jackie Chan obviously loved doing that with uh, a lot mm-hmm. of his movies. So... Who really deserves like the most credit for this idea of showing highlights from the movie or outtakes? Because like the the post credit scene for uh, Hard to Get to Hawaii is particularly good because you essentially get to indulge in a lot of the best nude scenes all over again. Uh, that and also just some of the moments of absurdity. Uh, the one that I can remember offhand uh, is the uh, skateboarding assassin with the blow up doll. That's that was the one. Yeah. The one that I can think of. So and then you got the the cat on the the, the box too. So it's. It's just it's showing, you know, the, I guess you could say the, the honey shots of the film, like, you know, the most the most absurd and also memorable moments of the film. But I honestly and it's also a bad habit of many films trying to have purposely made bloopers and stuff like that. That just honestly just takes me right out of the film. So it's like it's the same thing as you can't manufacture a bad movie. They just happen. The same thing with like good bloopers. They just happen. You can't. Well, that's try something to make that's that. always – whenever people try to make like an homage or a nod to kind of trash movies of the past, what they – where they get it wrong is they try to be too, I guess, meta or they're kind of winking at the audience and kind of making fun at their own material. Great yeah. exploitation films were made with total sincerity. And while Sidaris, we can kind of laugh and poke fun at some of like his silly lines or silly action scenes, he's making these movies the best he can, and I feel like that's – you need to basically have like your outtakes and bloopers be accidental. You can't engineer them. And yeah. I feel like Sidars is one of those guys where he knows precisely the story he wants to tell, and people can take it or leave it. But yeah, I can't stand it when people in the 21st century think, oh, well, we're going to make like a grindhouse movie or an exploitation film that uh, that pokes fun at all this stuff in the past. Like, right, well, then you've already kind of missed the mark because whether you're talking mm-hmm. about Australian exploitation films or black exploitation or whatever, most of those filmmakers were just working on with limited means. But if like you know, if you're watching Dolomite, Dolomite, like, that's one of the things I think the movie about Dolomite missed is that they're constantly poking fun at him and kind of like looking down on him. It's like no, like you don't get it. Like he was trying to make a legit movie, and I yeah. felt like it was almost disrespectful in a lot of ways. And I didn't like the tone of the behind the scenes of Dolomite. Uh, my, my name is Dolomite, the movie with Eddie Murphy, at all because I think they kind of they lost sight of the fact that those movies actually are wildly entertaining, especially like Human Tornado. Mm-hmm. So yeah, getting back to Hard Ticket to Hawaii. 
this movie's not trying to be Top Gun and it's not trying to be anything else. <laughs> it's I respect the integrity, even if integrity might be a bit of a stretch, but I feel like it's a work that is it's honest in terms of what it's trying to achieve. It's not, yeah, it's trying. It's not trying to be something that it's not. It, it knows exactly what kind of film it is, and it's just having the mo- as much fun possible doing it. And also, if you're a film history buff, there's all these great little bits. Like I love how at one point you see that when the the heroes come home, their home is covered in posters from Andy Sedaris's other movies. <laughs> like you see posters for Stacy, you see the German poster for Seven, and you see a poster from Malibu Express. So I know people love it. Like Tarantino will put in little like touches, like in Jackie Brown when uh, Robert Forster comes out of the movies. You're hearing the closing credit music from Pulp Fiction. It's mm-hmm. like little nods to his earlier movies, and I love it when directors do that kind of stuff. So Andy Sedaris is playing the same game. Mm-hmm. All right, well, talk to us about Rodrigo Obregón, who is, uh, this is his first movie that he appears, yeah. or his first Andy Sedaris movie, but he would appear in almost every single one of his subsequent movies. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like one of those weird uh, director-actor partnerships, whether it's uh, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell or... Uh, uh, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. It's just that something about these two, they clicked. Uh, they were able to appreciate the talents of one of each other and just appreciate the kind of films that they were bringing around. So this, it's one of those cases where it's like these something about this production, they clicked so well that they would just work together for the rest of the career, which is actually pretty interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm always a big fan when you see people doing that. I guess... I mean, for me, Andy Sidaris and, Don, and Donna Spear, that's like the great actor-director mm-hmm. duo of these. But Rodrigo Obregón, he, he's, a, he's a great heavy, he's a great villain, and he just keeps popping up on all these. But this movie, I think, a great follow-up to it, which is not on your the, your list of top five that you recommended, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, I think, well worth mentioning as well, is uh, 1988's Picasso Trigger. And it mm. basically picks up right where this one leaves off. Same stars, same setting. And 17 minutes into the movie, they're, they're waking up in their underwear and like they go nude scuba diving. The, what I noticed that with a lot of these movies, they always start with like these assassins or bad guys taking out a lot of the good guys. And then Donna Spear mm-hmm. and Hope Marie Carlton have to fuck them up. <laughs> and, but also <laughs> Picasso Trigger introduces Roberta Vasquez. And Roberta Vasquez, she was also a Playboy Playmate. She was um, uh, Playboy um, Playmate of the Month in November of '84, but she's uh, one of my all-time faves from this period as well. So oh, yeah, same here. I love Roberta Vasquez. Yeah, she's just absolutely ridiculous. But it's funny how I don't know if this was like a ratings thing or a censorship thing, but Sadar seems utterly uninterested in women from the waist down, except for perhaps like butt cheeks. I don't know. If, if you were to show pubic hair, if that would immediately give you like an NC-17 or, or not, or if it would like restrict you from having access to HBO or Cinemax, perhaps that was more – but I, maybe it was a creative decision. Maybe it was a censorship decision, but he doesn't seem particularly interested in anybody from the waist down, which I thought was kind of strange given just how many nude scenes and sex scenes there are in these films. Uh, I, I think that might be uh, an MPAA thing just because their regulations are just so weird, so random. It's like they're inconsistent in what in their enforcement of uh, regulations. I, I, I would probably lean more towards this being an MPAA thing. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. But also, Procasta Trigger's got Cynthia Brimhall, who I'm, I'm a big fan of. <clears throat> we get a great gym makeout scene. I, I love when it comes to like watching pornography. Makeout scenes in the gym are always a lot of fun. We have like a trainer and like the, you know, their client, like, oh my God, like this is so amazing let's go let's let's we're here let's let's fuck (laughs) always enjoy this stuff and it's also got some good lines in there at one point this guy's uh, he's on the phone he's bragging about how he uh he made five million dollars but he he's like i spent 80 percent of my five million on whiskey fast cars and faster women because and the rest of it i just pissed away (laughs) that was a pretty funny line 
In any event, so I have not yet seen Savage Beach from 89 or Guns from 1990, but I know those are two of his really popular ones as well. Have you, have you had a chance to see those two? Uh, no, I have not. They come right in his uh, his sweet spot from when he was really firing on all cylinders. But the next one on your list is Do or Die from 1991, which I have to concede is or acknowledge or agree that it's one of his strongest. So set the stage for us. What's going on in Do or Die? Do or Die. <laughs> A new kind of game. I have hired six teams of assassins. You are their quarry. And Marina stars as Kane, an international crime lord with a score to settle. You are dead. Nothing to it. Right. Starring Eric Estrada, Donna Spear, Roberta Vasquez, Bruce Penhall, and Pat Morita as Kane. We get hazardous duty pay for this. I hope we live long enough to spend it. Do or die. Get the job done. Uh, Kane, a crime lord, uh, challenges two agents, Donna and Nicole, to battle his top assassins. Uh, and these assassins each have like a unique theme or elements. You've got two Cajun cooks, two ninjas. You've got jet skiers, bikers. It's like smoky aces, but with like a thousand percent more tits. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got no shortage of tits, but what this movie does have, which a lot of the movies, other movies lack, you've got the great Pat Morita. Morita. In villain <laughs> role. you got the you know Karate Kid's teacher himself, Mr. Miyagi, as a villain, and I think he actually does a pretty yeah, goddamn good he job. Does. <laughs> like You can tell he's having the time of his life, and granted, it helps that pretty much every single scene in which he appears, he's got this ridiculously hot girl like giving him like back massages or things like that like he's he's got a good wingman throughout most mm -hmm. of this but pat marita in villain mode was so much fun and i love how it's almost like he's like a, like a comic book villain who enjoys orchestrating these grand conflicts where it's like he's got a sense of honor and a mm -hmm. sense of like fair play and he wants to see he, like his six teams of assassins matching their skills and their techniques against these insanely beautiful women and uh, I think, yeah, if you're a fan of just straight-up good old-fashioned comic books or action movies, Do or Die has actually one of the best, like, premises or premises of any of these. But you also got the great Eric Estrada throwing down in this movie as well. Yeah, you've got uh, Pandora Peaks. You've got Skip Ward, uh, Richard Cansino, uh, James Liu. And, of course, you got Roberta Vasquez, who is just uh, absolutely uh, mesmerizing. Yeah, Roberta Vasquez is one of those girls where it's like, all right, it looks like like, like a 14-year-old boy like designed her in a lab. Like, what's the like, <laughs> like what's like the, the ideal girl that can like push all, all my buttons? And like Roberta Vasquez is, is what they came up with. But this movie also introduces uh, another recurring actress who I love quite a bit is uh, Ava Cadell, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, yet another redhead. It's funny how there's so much nudity in these in these movies, but I wouldn't necessarily describe a lot of them as like turn-ons. Like they're just they're good fun, but it's more like athletic and kind of exuberant. But there's this one scene in Do or Die that really pushed my buttons, where you see Ava Cadell getting dressed in this tight white dress, and she just has these thunderous tits that are just like, oh my god! Like I mean, how are you? She's Amazonian. Yeah, it, it's. I, I, that was one of the scenes where I was like, all right, I got to pause and go back <laughs> and, and watch that scene again just to make sure that I'm uh, soaking in and appreciating all the subtle nuances of this particular scene. Uh, and uh, uh, what was it? Um, and uh, oddly enough, yeah, the, just the, the whole the, the weird thing. And interestingly enough, um, at the very end, it's like, OK, you've got uh, Kane who actually wants this to be a hand to hand combat fight. 
and yet it's the good guys that actually cheat by using weaponry. So I thought oh, that was actually yeah. Well, they're like, like, fuck you. We're not playing your stupid game. You've been sending all these assassins to kill us. We're going to defend ourselves however we feel. And I think one of my favorite bits is when you've got Donna Spear and Roberta Vasquez dressed in black fighting ninjas in the woods. And, like, you know, they don't, they're not necessarily ready to compete with Jet Li or Jackie Chan or any, like, real mm-hmm. martial artists. But if you want to see smoking hot girls dressed in black fighting ninjas, there are not a lot of movies that offer that. Like the, the, this is like the one scene where you get to see that scenario. And yeah, I love seeing Roberta Vasquez getting into the getting into the action scenes. And yeah, Carolyn Liu, she's I mean ridiculously hot. I mean, I guess if people want to play like the identity politics game, he's very equal opportunity when it comes to getting like Asians and Latinos and white girls yeah. and like, kind of kind of keeping things mixed up and they've been giving us a, a lot of variety. But what really I guess what I did not like in this movie was some of the atrocious southern accents. He's a big fan of uh, putting like kind of country bumpkin scenes or like country restaurants mm-hmm. or just like go, going into rural environments. And you have these guys at this restaurant who are basically talking about like their Louisiana recipes. And I was like, all right, if y'all don't stop talking, I'm going to like <laughs> throw my fucking TV out the window. I, I just couldn't handle that shit. No, and I think that's also part of the film's charm. I, I I can't I can't help but actually just kind of find that uh, that uh, uber hee haw type uh, material just to be entertaining. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally fair. Like, I guess like the scenes that I really got in, into in this movie were like there's one really funny bit where you see two guys who are getting really into their katas where they're basically stretching and sparring, but they're not just like wearing like gym attire. They're completely oiled up, fake tans, shirtless. It's like when people are like having a workout in these movies, they they go all in. And I guess that's something that's been lost in a lot of movies today where you can tell like these movies, they're almost kind of wallowing in the most like superficial materialistic side of the 1980s. But like they really, I guess it's 1991s, but they really embody that like all you want to do is get rich, have a good time, and make movies about good looking people either fucking or fighting. And Mm -hmm. I love how there's like, there's no attempt ever in any of these to insert like a a message or teach anything. It's like, how can we have these movies be the most fun possible from start to finish? Whether it's like people getting it on in a waterfall while like cheesy music plays, or like one of my favorite sequences is when like you got the team and they're all gearing up for battle and these killer tunes kick in right as all the girls are like sliding on their tight pants and their leather jackets. I was like, fuck yeah, like this is some good old (laughs) going to war music. Yeah, that, that's and that's just part of the fun of his films. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Donna Spear, I mean, he he struck gold when he uh, teamed up with her. She's got so many great bits in this. Like at one point, they're flying around in a, in a small plane, and she's getting changed in the back of the plane, and her titties are just popping out in every direction. And <laughs> she just uh, she was a, a great muse for him to work with. And while I love Cynthia Brimhall, but it's I think it's fair to say that like Donna Spear is his his greatest hero that he worked with uh, most frequently, and she's still uh, in prime mode and do or die. But did she work? With any other filmmakers, or is she just pretty much uh, a uh, a Sidaris regular? I think yeah, she is just uh, pretty much a Sidaris regular. Uh, I can't recall seeing her or anything outside of his work. So yeah, that that would probably be the case. When you watch that interview with her, when she's talking about what it's like to to work with them, and she's got so much confidence. You don't, I don't think, have the acting bug as far as you just got to act or you would die. You mm-hmm. don't have that yet, do you? You know what's funny? It seems like as long as I don't have that, the parts and the roles keep coming to me. It's just amazing. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, I guess that's uh, okay then, isn't it? Yeah, it's fun. You know, I wanted to add something. You, you, uh, you were talking to Arlene about, about the women in the film and about them taking their clothes off and things like that. But one thing Arlene didn't mention was that all the women roles in this film and, and the following film, Picasso Trigger, 
all are very strong uh, uh, people. They are, I hate to say this, but they are a little bit above men. They uh, are the heroes of the film. They save the men's lives. They, uh, they have the brains. They have the knowledge. They don't, they don't mess up. And they really don't. Uh, um, they carry the film, basically. Really you know? so, and, and it says a lot. It says it's, it's a statement. So. You were a Playboy playmate. Right. Now, what, what did that do on the good side of the ledger and the bad side of the ledger for your life? Um, the good side, uh, it got me to travel. It made me quite a bit of money. On the bad side, I, um, at the time I did Playboy, I was also working in New York with an agency, and I was just getting into commercials and things like that. And the only really thing that happened to me that was bad was I lost a couple of P&G commercials, you know, Procter & Gamble, because they will not touch anybody with Playboy. Mm. Yeah, but this was a few years ago, and that may have changed. But um, I'm just looking up on IMDb. Her last movie was Fit to Kill. So she did, uh, yeah, Hard Hunted. She, did, she worked a little bit on sil Silk Stockings. She worked a little bit on Columbo. But yeah, her movies, she did a little bit of TV, like the new Mike Hammer and like in, um, in the early 80s. But it seems like the real start of her career was Into the Night and Doing Time and then Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Oh, she did some Night Rider. Very nice. So she had a good solid 10-year run before she decided to hang it up. But, yeah, but Fit to Kill was her, her swan song. Yeah, and uh, she's uh, currently, I guess, a motivational speaker after uh, 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 beating her battle with uh, alcoholism. I did not know about that. So, what, tell me, tell me a little more about that. Uh, says uh, according to her, she's an author, speaker, and coach. Uh, she, Donna got sober in 1987, and she's been an active member of a recovery program ever since. Uh, for the past 32 years, she's been mentoring women to overcome their addictions. Interesting. I did not know that. If she went sober in '87, that is that coincides perfectly with Hard Ticket to Hawaii. So maybe. When she discovered this this action franchise that she starred in so frequently, maybe that was kind of a way to. Uh, I, I feel like when somebody's got a substance abuse problem, one of the best mm -hmm. ways to beat it sometimes is to replace it with something else that's equally intense and involving. And you see a lot of people like in MMA who used to be addicted to like crystal meth or certain drugs, and they replace that addiction with like fitness, and they go all in. So who knows? Maybe making all these movies gave her the perfect um, escape from her previous yeah. uh, previous lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she did so many of them. But I guess most of these, yeah, Fit to Kill, Hard Hunted, Do or Die, Guns, Savage Beach, Picasso Trigger, and Hard to Get in Hawaii, that's a ton of uh, Sidaris flicks, so more power to her. But Sidaris was not a one-man band. He was a big believer in the family enterprise. And you've got a movie on your list that was actually directed by his son. So yeah. talk to me a little bit about Enemy Gold from 1993 because here we see him kind of passing the baton to the next generation of filmmakers. Yeah, uh, Enemy Gold uh, starts with uh, a, a, a very bad uh, Civil War flashback. It's obviously they're reenactors. Uh, but uh, a cache of gold is stolen from Union forces and buried in the woods by Confederate agents. Uh, fast forward to present day. Uh, three agents of the agency are suspended after a reckless bust of a narcotics front. Uh, with their time off, they decide to go camping in the woods. Uh, meanwhile, Santiago and his top assassin, Jewel Panther, are going after the agents' payback for the bust. And then soon both parties find out about the gold and they're in pursuit of the cachet. Uh, you've got uh, Julie Strain. You've got uh, Susie Simpson. Uh, she, uh, Susie Simpson, I think, uh, might be the competition for Roberta Vasquez. She's just stunning. Yeah, Susie Simpson. 
Simpson was special. Uh, she's one of the many blondes to emerge from Playboy in the early 90s during this Pamela Anderson era. Because people remember, like, in the early 90s, suddenly the platinum blonde craze was fully underway between, like, Anna Nicole Smith and Jenny McCarthy and Pamela mm-hmm. Anderson. It just, all of a sudden, you had all these... They weren't like Marilyn Monroe lookalikes. They were more like, um, uh, not Mamie Van Dorn. Uh, who was the the actress in the early '60s who got beheaded in that car crash? Uh, Jane Mansfield. It was more mm-hmm. like Jane Mansfield. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Was it Jane Mansfield? Yeah, it was Jane Mansfield. And but suddenly in the Playboy in the early '90s, just went all in on these platinum blondes. And so Susie Simpson was one of the the many blondes to emerge from Playboy at this time. But I think she just is incredible as Becky Midnight. She's another total badass like Donna Spear, and she's got like these scenes where she's like unzipping her white dress. So it's like rare full nudity in these movies, mm-hmm. and uh, but you got like the cheesy kind of sad Saxon guitar music in the background. But she's so beautiful that you yeah. don't that you don't really mind. And I think her best scene by far is when she's in this outdoor shower. It's just incredible. It's just glorious, and suddenly. This gunfight breaks out. We've got like dirt bikes and four wheelers and crossbows and all this crazy shit going on. I was like, "What? It's like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> how, how did this movie switch gears so quickly?" And but I love how she ends up killing this dude with the crossbow. He's trying to take her out in the shower, and when her allies return, she's just standing there striking this incredible pose with like her butt cheeks on prominent display with a crossbow in frame. I was like, "All right, that is an Andy Sedaris shot. You got butt cheeks, crossbow, mm-hmm. dead men, and these like, kind of like befuddled boys who are kind of confused as to what happened. And yeah, that that scene was uh, was absolutely wild. I mean, I, I, how actively involved was Andy Sedaris with this? Like, did he produce it and help supervise with the son, or what? What was going down? Yeah, yeah, he was still a producer on set, so he was kind of able to mentor his son, saying, "Okay." Uh, you know, you can try this and you can try uh, this other way. Uh, you can go ahead and get this shot in this way. And so it was really just uh, not really passing out the torch, but just kind of an experiment because I know uh, uh, Christian Drew um, Sedaris uh, only did like two films before Andy Sedaris sort of, uh, took back the reins. So this gotcha. is. This is kind of like an experiment saying, okay, you, you gave it your best. You know, you had some cool moments, but really, let me go ahead and just take it back for myself. Because it seemed like this was almost an attempt to wrap up the previous franchise because the ninth installment in the Lethal Ladies series, and it was meant to, I guess, tie things up so you could start like a, a, another franchise with some of his later movies. Mm-hmm. And I guess it shares some characters with the Dallas Connection from 1994, but you're not quite sure if it's supposed to be like an actual sequel or a remake. But you start seeing a lot. It's almost like he's got a new generation or a new crop of actors that he starts working with repeatedly. Like actresses like Julie Strain, who becomes mm-hmm. a major part of his movies uh, moving forward. I, I don't try to. I don't get too worked up over the the strict continuity. <laughs> yeah, don't. If you're if you're uh, if you're anal retentive about continuity, this is not the series for you. <laughs> yeah, it's like it just doesn't matter that much. But Julie Strain, man, I, I'm I'm a big fan of her in this. Like, she's got this great bit where she's distracting these guys with the left. Her bikini before she blows the park them rangers away. Yeah, yeah yep and it's like anytime a girl shows up in these movies and she's wearing a leopard bikini usually means she's about to use her feminine wiles to mm-hmm. uh to to lay waste to them and her line delivery is absolutely hysterical it's like she's gritting her teeth whenever she says her lines yeah she i mean i guess <laughs> in her own way she's quote-unquote acting but i love how she yeah. just like you know what i'm not sybil shepherd no i'm sybil shepherd i'm, I'm um, uh what the hell's her name uh the chick from like um Oh my God! <laughs> like the biggest actress of the last thirty years with all these. Oh, like, like Meryl Streep. Or yeah, something she's, like not, that. She's, <laughs> she's not. She's not Meryl Streep. So she just kind of just 
gives her uh, her line readings as much intensity as possible and kind of hopes for the best. But uh, once again, when it comes to like recurring moments from different movies, you've got a, a scene in this that almost goes all the way back to um, Stacy from 1973. Like, Stacy for me, like, only really got one great bit where for the opening credits, you've got you know the main actress just popping her boobies out and then the um it's Ann Randall and then you the credits begin you're like all right well this is a, an Andy Sidaris movie but once again in this you've got hang on a second scroll back down yeah you got Susie Simpson rolling up in this white sports car and then pops out and starts teasing everybody with a bunch of sexy poses while all these kind of country boys are practicing their judo throws and their martial arts and I always enjoy seeing the like redneck martial art enthusiast because as a little <laughs> kid when I my barber was a total redneck Taekwondo enthusiast. He had like a jerry curl and a mullet and like tight jeans, would oftentimes wear cowboy boots. And he, he was the guy who would give me my skater cuts. He would shave my head on one side and leave the bangs along on the other. And I remember at one point, this kid even came in, challenged him. <laughs> he had some beef from karate class. But for whatever reason, like for me, martial arts and redneck culture always go together hand in hand, like movies like Foot Fist Way and stuff like that. Uh, and then you also have like Fred the Hammer Williamson, who was doing martial arts, taking out racists. So, yeah, that's uh, it goes all the way. You can go all the way back to like the 70s for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess for Enemy Gold, the parts that don't work for me at all, and this is as somebody who's from the South, Anything and everything involved in the Civil War, I was like, ugh. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, y'all just maybe you could have left the period flashback scenes up to our imagination, but the the period pieces or the the flashbacks don't really don't really do it for me. And this whole idea of like trying to hunt down like Quantrill's lost gold, mm-hmm. I mean, whatever. But I, I think everything else in the movie works way better than the uh, the Civil War ingredients. Yeah, and just the moments of absurdity, too, uh, like firing a flare gun at a shack that just explodes, like, for no apparent reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's I mean, pretty much in all these, whether it's a crossbow bolt or a flare gun or whatever, things just blow up. But, yeah, I think that the, the main thing now is just, like, these new characters where you have these great code names and nicknames, like Jewel Panther and Cobra. Like, yeah, Ty Collins is uh, Ava Noble's really great. Susie Simpson, obviously, is great as Becky Midnight. So I, I love all these new code names that start to emerge at, at, at this stage that you obviously can continues to be um, kind of reused. Uh, hang on one sec. I, I'm just going through my notes for these movies. It's almost like going through the notes of like a deranged pervert that she gets <laughs> locked with because they don't even make any sense. Like I've got this one line that says, nice, Julie in leather straps and studs practicing in front of fire as some dude rubs up against her. Like, And I've got a star next to her. I was like, what? what? <laughs> my notes, they're just, uh, yeah. If these notes will remain unpublished, uh, just for my own safety, it is kind of fun going back through these. Like one note says, "Ty Collins, tan and lithe, Jesus," or <laughs> "Fuck yeah, strip club scene audition." <laughs> it's like, these are not sophisticated, intelligent notes that I was taking down. I mean, if you think your notes are funny, I can only imagine like actually reading the script and go and just just the ship sudden change in tone or uh, uh, going from like one type of genre to another, just like the absolute madness, uh, mad genius, I guess you could say, of uh, Sedaris and crew. I imagine that for a good 15-year stretch there, they're making money hand over fist with these movies. They're working with their friends. They're working with the same crew again and again. It's a family enterprise where the kids are involved, the wife's involved. I'm sure they had some – and Andy Sedaris was a relatively – like, you know, he was an older guy at this point in, in his career. I, I'm sure he was like, oh, my God, like, I have fucking, like, hit the goddamn lottery with this whole formula of this enterprise that I've set up. And it just seems like they yeah, they could do no wrong. But um, 
any particular favorite cameos or personal appearances by Andy Sidaris in these movies? Because it seems like when his big like recurring things, he loves popping up. And anytime there's a restaurant scene, he likes to be in kind of like a big shot, sitting at a table, yep. surrounded by food and expensive alcohol. Uh, favorite cameo has to be his in uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii as uh, the TV director. Just this sleazy, almost uh, Harvey Weinstein type character. Like, okay, did uh, did Andy Sedaris know about Weinstein before any of us did? <laughs> I mean, he probably did, but yeah, guys, Weinstein was just getting he was just getting started in the eighties, so maybe it was just he was it was eerily prophetic the <laughs> persona that he was into, or maybe those those personas have been around any form of show business since like you mm-hmm. know the, going back to the days of like Elizabethan theater. I'm sure there'll always be people that are trying to prey upon uh, prey upon ladies. But the last movie on your list is Day of the Warrior from 1996. Day of the Warrior, an Andy Sedaris film. Undercover agents of the Lethal Force have a high priority mission to stop the Warrior. Our contact man in Washington has succeeded in breaking into the Lethal Force computer system. Red alert. This guy Warrior. Who the hell is he anyhow? He's the mastermind behind a billion-dollar black market network. And if this break-in has anything to do with him, he'll kill them all. Oh! It's our worst nightmare, Tyler. Have someone in our organization giving us up. We're gonna get killed! Got to think positive. Positive, we're gonna get killed. The ladies of the Lethal Force are undercover and at the top of their form. This is better than I expected. Load all your guns. Look for excitement. And leave your inhibitions behind. They have props. You know what to do. Force is armed and ready for the day of the warrior. Ah, come on, Foop! Day of the Warrior, an Andy Sedaris film, starring Pithouse Pets Julie Strain, Julie K. Smith, Playboy Centerfold Shea Marks, American Gladiators Ray Zapolit and WCW wrestling sensation Marcus Bagwell as the warrior. So I think this one might be, it's getting close to being up there with Malibu Express in terms of being one of the most overtop and fun, but what, yeah. is the, what is the gist of this particular flick? Uh, the agency's computer database is compromised. Uh, the identities of field operatives are exposed. Uh, Willow Black, uh, the head of the agency, believes the criminal mastermind known as the Warrior is responsible. Uh, Agents Cobra, Tiger, and Willow, uh, along with their sensei Fu, uh, must stop the Warrior and his henchmen. I mean, that sounds like a a winning formula for me. But uh, there's something about this one where, like, the lighting's more extreme. Some of the sequences are more extreme. The girls are more physically, like, strong and curvaceous. Like, suddenly all the things that we've been watching in all the other movies – Injects a little steroids into all of them. I mean, quite yeah, literally. Hyper like, realistic, yeah. Yeah, you got one of, the, one of the hottest muscular women I've ever seen in any movie, like this girl, Ray Hollett, who is one of the. If you really want to see her like in a great comedy scene, there's this movie called Skin Deep with John Ritter, where John Ritter is absolutely petrified by this really powerful woman he's about to get it on <laughs> with. But I, I love how he starts to kind of shift gears in terms of some of the body types that he introduces. Mm-hmm. And you've got you know, Shea Marks, 
it's almost like a parody of what a, like a porn star is supposed to look like. And you got mm-hmm. Julie K. Smith from Penthouse. So I, I like it. You've got some new talent involved. But uh, the Day of the Warrior kind of caught me off guard because I was thinking, oh, it's 1996. I'm sure like he's starting to run out of steam at this point. But it almost seems like he re- rediscovered his enthusiasm for the franchise when he made this when he made this movie. Yeah, and I remember seeing Shay Marks in Playboy, and uh, her bust was nowhere near that big. So she she got the Shauna O'Brien treatment of just these outrageous uh, implants. That it, it's just... absolutely. So I think this is one of the movies that also just it really hits the ground running from like moment you say go. Like you have this opening credit sequence in a strip club where a girl in a leather mask with the you know tits the size of a human head mm-hmm. is just going berserk. And I guess that's I think that's Julie K. Smith. Julie K. Smith. Yep. Yeah, who's a major penthouse pet in the '90s. But I was like, all right, it's always a good. It's if you can start your movie strong and end it strong and have a killer scene in the middle, people will forgive a lot of downtime in between. And, yeah, he, he's learned his lessons well. And then you've also got a WCW wrestler Marcus Bagwell as the Warrior, uh, a wrestler who's probably best known for uh, being fired by WWE after the uh, WCW buyout. And he's now currently a male escort. So Interesting. Like, <laughs> yeah. still, still, like in 2020, he's a male escort? Yeah. Yep, still in 2020. Wow, because I, 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 I know very little about wrestling. But as I was watching, I was like, this guy clearly is taking a page out of the book of The Ultimate Warrior. Was the was that was that how he was kind of regarded by the wrestling community? Was he regarded as like a, a B grade imitation kind of Ultimate Warrior wannabe? No, not even close. Uh, his uh, real persona in uh, wrestling was kind of like this white meat babyface, like this just smiling good guy. Interesting. Uh, he's and uh, yeah, he's he went to Tonka in this movie. I don't know where that came from, but. Uh, uh, he just is clearly having a lot of fun, and when he delivers that pile driver, that's like how you would really do the move, and that's the real damage it could do is break your neck. Yeah, I mean, I thought he he was, he was a great villain, and once again, like while these movies definitely, while the the females definitely are the the feature attraction, you've got this just ridiculously oiled up, tan, muscular dude doing his thing, and uh, I thought he he made a, a great antagonist. But when it comes to like wild over the top bodies like it's shea marks for me in this like as i was watching oh, yeah. it playing tiger like my heart felt like it was going to stop several times but also like tammy parks <laughs> a scorpion mm-hmm. next level hotness i mean all the girls in this i was like <gasps> yeah this is some of uh, the headliners of like 90s skinamax and centerfolds yeah without a doubt but you've also got the great gerald akamura yes that, i wanted to bring him up because he is hilarious in this movie yeah i mean he's always like on the cover of like karate magazine and black belt magazine and things like that and you Big see trouble him, in little china yeah yeah he's yeah. like when but before the battle even starts he's the guy who comes out and he's like <laughs> he kind of like you know issues the first challenge between those two big uh, armies in that alleyway so he's a legit like martial arts performer but he pops up in this as a an Asian Elvis, Elvis. impersonator. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Like, on more than one, like, like, early in the movie and as I, at the very end of the movie, I was like, all right, well, we are in very special territory here. Uh, absolutely. And it's, I think this is probably where, I mean, this is even for the 1990s, so this is kind of when uh, Sedaris is slowing down, but still, it, it shows that he still has that spark. Like, he can really make a great movie when he tries and put some effort into it. Yeah, and like there's when it comes to like the soft core ingredients, there there's this great bit where there's a line that's a kind of a nod to the James Bond franchise with the uh, Diamonds of Forever, which in that movie, James Bond famously said like there's something I'd like you to get off your chest, and he like, yanks the girl's bikini top off of her and starts choking her and starts interrogating her because she's she's working for the bad guys. But in this, you've got Shay Marks in front of the fire. And she says there's something I have to get off my chest, and just boom, <laughs> top comes off. It's glorious, and you get you get this wild soft core scene in front of a fire, which is you know cheesy but super hot. I think it's a, yeah. one, I think it's one of his strongest scenes when it comes to the erotic ingredients. 
Yeah, I'll agree with you there. And uh, the sex in front of a fireplace is honestly kind of cliche, but yet if it didn't work, people wouldn't use it. Yeah, and it keeps getting reused again and again. Well, talk to me a little bit about some of these kind of lovable dumbasses who are making movies in this where one of the strangest scenes in any of these Andy Sidaris movies is where you've got these guys who are shooting like a softcore scene with a guy in a leopard mankini and the guys, for whatever reason, are recording their own audio then and there making like the voices, but uh, I guess are they, I guess they're kind of sort of the villains of the movie. I couldn't quite figure out what, what to make of these guys. Yeah, they were the henchmen. I know one of them was played by Richard Casino, who is uh, a regular for Sedaris. And Casino, he's got a weird career. Uh, he did a lot of anime voiceover, uh, Ghost in the Shell, Fist of the North Star, uh, Street Fighter II, the animated movie. So I guess that was kind of a precursor to his later career, uh, doing the weird voiceovers for pornography. But this is... Comic relief is a common element to Sidaris, and these guys were filling that role to a T. So these guys were just – Sidaris is almost like, okay, guys, improvise your scenes, have fun. You know, we'll, we'll roll for 20 minutes and see what you can come In up with. In theory, they like supposedly went to like Harvard Business School and that sort of thing. I was like, I was like <laughs> yeah. what is going on here? Like I feel like he was – kind of beginning to do like a little cultural commentary where like like a book in the eye of the one percent kinds of people and yeah making the harvard b school grads into the, like <laughs> these dumbass thugs but i guess it makes the movie either intentionally or unintentionally much more funny having these two guys in the flick mm-hmm. i think another scene where you see sidaris on steroids is when you have these purple neon lights when ray hollett gets it on with the ultimate warrior wannabe and i was like all right well now we got <laughs> two giant like bodybuilders throwing down and yeah, it's it's a funny thing where like maybe it's just because I grew up reading so many comics, but I, I love seeing really muscular people getting it on. And so, I guess when everyone people think of Playboy or Penthouse, whatever they think of certain body types, I like how Ray Hollett gets multiple moments where she gets to show off what she's got. And there's a cool bit where she's wearing this like like black dress while fighting toward the end, while walking around with a big ass shotgun. And there's something really cool about seeing a girl who's like got like bodybuilder level muscles, but dressed in almost like evening attire. And I always mm-hmm. love that contrast. It reminds me of the girl who does the stunts on Supergirl. I saw this great bit from a red carpet. Um, I, I don't even know which show or movie it was for, but she was throwing high kicks while wearing her high heels in this red evening gown. And there's just something so cool about seeing a really muscular, badass girl dressed in a really sophisticated, feminine way. And the same thing happened again when I went to the New York premiere of Hateful Eight. When Zoe Bell, the stunt woman who works with Tarantino over and over and over again, crazy martial artist, awesome muscles, but she was dressed in evening attire and putting on this show dancing in the middle of a circle of friends. And I've always loved that contrast where really muscular athletic girls dress in a really feminine way. It just creates an interesting contrast in flavors. Well, any final words on Day of the Warrior? Because we've got... I guess the last thing I've got done here is at the Lethal Safe House, we see posters on the wall for Savage Beach, Do or Die, and Hard Hunted. So once again, Sidaris loves doing the uh, the winks to the audience to his fans who have been following his uh, his previous movies. Yeah. It never hurts to have a little shameless self-promotion. Uh, and one thing I will say is that the film takes place in Las Vegas, which is a nice change of pace from Texas or Hawaii. So he was willing to go ahead and kind of show some geographical diversity in his films. Indeed. Well, for anybody who sees this and likes this and they like Shea Marks, I'm also going to give another shout out to his next movie, Return to Savage Beach from 1998. If you like Shea Marks, I think that her, her real scenes come two years later in Return to Savage Beach. So for all the fans of her out there, definitely make sure to put that one on your list as well. But I, I'm excited. I still got a few of his movies 
left to see. And I guess I'm probably going to put Guns and Savage Beach at the top of the list in terms of movies that I, I want to see because I feel like they come right in that, that sweet spot between mm-hmm. uh, Picasso Trigger and Do or Die. But <clears throat> I just can't thank you enough for introducing me to his, uh, his filmography. But do you have any final words or thoughts on his career overall, his legacy, what it represents? Now, now's the time to give us the Mackenzie Lambert deep dive. <laughs> I would say that, you know, Sedaris does deserve some credit as far as putting strong, uh, capable women on screen. Uh, It's not like this is something new as some pundits or uh, entertainment writers would make it out to be. You go all the way back to Aliens with Ellen Ripley or Sarah Connor. But Sedaris was the one who was really able to add a lot of strong sexuality to that strength. And that's something that he should get a lot of, in fact, not not all the credit for it, along with uh, the likes of Russ Meyer. Yeah, I mean, there are very few things that are new under the sun. I mean, if you want to go back to, like, strong, badass female characters, I just recently listened to the book on tape of The Odyssey, and it was uh, the Robert Fagel's translation read by Ian McKellen. But Athena shows up throughout the entire story Mm -hmm. every step of the way, and without Athena... Odysseus would fail like a hundred times over and she knows she's a goddess of wisdom and combat. And so I feel like people who get really preoccupied with certain narratives or certain agendas, oftentimes they subscribe so wholeheartedly to a particular narrative. They fail to do their homework on anything that might possibly contradict their narrative. And if you want to look for badass female chicks doing badass things, you can look throughout history and find tons of killer examples. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. anything that we think is new or interesting, the Greeks did it probably better 2,700 <laughs> 2, years ago. So it's just a, yet another example of, of a fine tradition. So, yeah, for people out there who like watching sexy girls kicking all kinds of ass, it's hard to do better than Andy Sidara. So I had an absolute blast every step of the way watching these flicks. And anytime you've got I – mean, it seems like there's, there's always new rocks to look under when it comes to low-budget genre films and these people who have these giant filmographies. So keep the recommendations coming. Yeah. I, I'm down – just off the top of your head, are there any film, <clears throat> any filmmakers that you particularly love that you feel like haven't necessarily had like, been like you know properly covered by film writers and film commentators? Like who who's out there that deserves like a critical reappraisal? Uh, honestly, I might have to do a little bit of research on that. Uh, just uh, putting me on the spot, uh, I couldn't come up with any, but you know I'll probably check back with you in a, a couple of weeks or so and see what I can find. I mean, he's more of a straight up. Pornographer, but I've been watching a lot of Tinto Brass as of late. I've been watching. I've been rediscovering a lot of scenes from his. Joe D'Amato is a filmmaker. I always Joe D'Amato. Yeah, oh yeah, he's I, one that I, I want to learn a yeah. lot more about. But it's like I feel like between Italy and Japan and, and America, we just like in the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties had <laughs> so many low budget genre kind of schlockmeisters, where their work decades later still has a lot of power. And I, I'm a big believer in longevity <clears throat> and of films. Still pack pack a punch decades later. There's something going on, and you can't just casually discard it or disregard it. And so, yeah, I'm I'm proud to have uh, done an episode on Andy Sidaris and struck a blow on his behalf, and hopefully remind people of just how cool he is. And obviously, with his box sets doing well and his movies, I think it's I can't remember which platform it is. There's a, a platform you have to subscribe to on on Amazon called like Full Moon TV or whatever. But if you subscribe to that app, you get access to almost all of his movies then and there for free. So that's how, that's yeah. how I went about it. Yeah, no, um, uh, I actually got the the twelve disc, uh, the twelve movie box set from uh, Mill Creek. Uh, those are the from them. So yeah, there, there's it's surprisingly uh, uh, how accessible his films are. Now seven is that a part of that? Or you have to buy that separately because I, I bought the seven Blu-ray just on its own. 
Yeah, seven is sold separately. Yeah, that one you have to buy on its own. That's the only one that I bought. The rest I was able to find like at the drop of a hat. And like I said, Stacy. I wouldn't necessarily recommend Stacy unless you really love his like just knowing his whole filmography. But that was readily available on YouTube. But because it has nude scenes, I'm surprised it hasn't had like a strike for violating community guidelines. YouTube's pretty aggressive about pulling things but i guess it's been flying under the radar and no one knows that it's there <laughs> in its entirety but that was the fastest and easiest way to uh to find the movie awesome well before we wrap up remind people where can they find your show what do you got cooking in the oven what's your social media all those good things oh, yeah uh you can find me as a cinema mac on uh, facebook and twitter uh my uh podcast can be heard on spotify uh google play uh iTunes and Podomatic, uh, Mac and the Movies. Uh, tomorrow I'll have my uh, Jerry Gross episode will go up. And uh, with uh, my uh, two-year anniversary coming up, I'm definitely going to be looking at uh, uh, going at uh, the next big uh, – well, I first started out with the horror franchise uh, Friday the 13th. And so for my two-year anniversary, I'm going to look at the other big horror franchise of the 80s, Nightmare on Elm Street. Very nice. Yeah, I mean I was a hopeless, massive fan of Nightmare on Elm Street. When I was in fourth grade, caught the first one on TV – and I immediately started buying the posters, making making Freddy gloves, like doing anything and everything. And but it really shook me up. I mean, at age ten when I saw that, uh, I, go, I remember going outside with my older brother after we were walking our, my dog, and we were both. It was almost like we had like had like a near miss where we'd almost been hit by a bus. It, it really shook us up, and we went in, back inside, watched number two, which wasn't quite as good. But then I, when Dream Warriors came out in the theater. My friends and I were ready, and I'll never forget. We went. To, we were sitting there in the theater. First big dream sequence with Patricia Arquette, and she's stuck in like molasses, like r- running slowly in her dream. And mm-hmm. you see Freddie in the background slide into frame. And I'll never forget. My buddy Nick and I side by side just went, "Yeah!" and kind of like did a little <laughs> fist pump. <laughs> and we were just so into it. So yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's a that's a hell of a franchise. And yeah, Freddie in a lot of ways was like the biggest celebrity of the 1980s. But my little mm-hmm. sister for years wouldn't even come in my room because there's so many Freddy posters. Like she looked up <laughs> in my room as like this chamber of horrors. And she didn't tell me this so much later in life. She was like, oh yeah, when I was a little kid, like I was afraid of a room. I was like, oh, I guess I can be proud and ashamed all at once. <laughs> well, cool. Well, best of luck with all your content. Thanks again for making such a cool pitch. And for oh, people yeah. out there who got a taf- taste for, uh, you know, rough and rowdy kinds of movies definitely hunt down these flicks i would recommend starting with malibu express and then going from there but day of the warrior pretty goddamn fun that's a, maybe my <laughs> second favorite of the uh, of the bunch but if you enjoyed this podcast please remember to subscribe to the show leave the episode a rating and review on itunes or whatever platform you might be using and if you want some more content in the short term Go to my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where I recently posted a giant 23-minute video about Christopher Nolan. It's almost like a little mini podcast unto itself, and we've got a bunch of episodes and uh, videos coming out on both platforms moving forward. But can't thank enough for listening. Greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.